From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Might free bus rides clean up Metro Denver's air? RTD's own past suggests the answer's no. Then, a CODA story in Colorado. Avery Morris, whose hearing has parents who are deaf. And even though her first language was ASL, her folks never relied on her as an interpreter. I am so thankful for their decision. I was able to just enjoy being a child, and I didn't need to take on such a responsibility. I asked daughter and dad if the movie Coda has helped them feel better understood. Then, a valedictory speech from a young woman in Colorado who was held captive. Can we, the graduating class of Amachi Senior High School, still believe that America means freedom, equality, security, and justice? Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Make bus rides free, help clean up air pollution on the Front Range. Sounds simple, right? The state is poised to give millions of dollars to public transit agencies across Colorado to make fares temporarily gratis. The idea is to get drivers out of their cars during the summer ozone season. But it turns out state leaders have tried this before, and it wasn't all that effective. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner is with us. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ryan. So we've been here before. We have, yeah. Back in the 1970s, Denver's air was really bad back then, and cars were a very big part of that problem. Morning in Denver. And when the smog isn't too heavy, Denver has rather beautiful mornings. But often the smog is heavy because, among its other distinctions, Denver has more automobiles per capita than any other city in the country, including Los Angeles. So by the late 70s, this had reached really a crisis level. Newspapers quoted experts predicting disaster within a decade. And that scared politicians and business leaders into action. In January 78, a bank executive started pushing this idea for free transit. And it landed on the front page of the Denver Post. Within a few weeks, the Regional Transportation District, or RTD, dropped fares outside of rush hour. In just a few weeks. Yeah, they moved really quickly on this one. And originally it was supposed to be just for a month, but then state leaders got excited and they lobbied the federal government and got funding to extend it for an entire 12-month period. So an entire year of free rides on RTD? That's right, outside of rush hour. So like 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And how did it go? Well, buses got really popular really quickly. I I checked in with Sally Frederick. She was a bus driver back in 1978. I was always running late because I had so many people on the bus. It turned out everybody wanted to ride the bus while it was free. So even if they were just going to go three or four blocks or one bus stop to another stop, they hopped on and hopped off. 
Well, if buses were that crowded, it must have taken some cars off the road, right? It did, yeah. So I found a federal government report on this whole experiment. Um, It was kind of hard to track down. I had to go down to the library and pull a paper copy of it. But it found that 12,000 bus trips a day were made by former drivers or car passengers. Okay, so that's sort of the conversion. 12,000, is that a lot? You know, it. I thought it sounded like a lot. Like, imagine 12,000 cars in one place. That's a lot of cars. Mm-hmm. But if you put it in context of the entire metro area and how many people are driving, it's really not that many. It amounted to a drop in driving so small that the authors of this report couldn't distinguish it from the typical daily variations caused by things like the weather. Ah, so it sounds like a blip. Uh, was it just because Denver was a car town? I I think so. Um, Not very many people used transit overall back then, or now, frankly. Governments have long subsidized car travel here by building these big highways, by sprawling out in these suburban-style developments. So even a big crease in ridership just doesn't move the needle, needle that much if the baseline is really low, like it is here. All right, this experiment was a while ago. I know that other cities have since tried free fare programs. How have those turned out? You know, it's kind of a similar story. Um, More people ride, definitely, but it doesn't substantially reduce driving. And that's the real goal here. It doesn't substantially reduce driving. This is fascinating history that you've uncovered, Nate. And so... I suppose against this backdrop, I wonder why state lawmakers are preparing to do this again here. So I asked that question of one of the sponsors of this new bill. Jennifer Bacon is a Democrat from Denver. You know, I don't think we're in a place to claim that this will, of course, be a panacea, right? But um, I wonder if our air quality is in a different place. We've got to try as many things as we can because what's happening here is just so hazardous to our health. So she's saying basically, sure, it might not solve anything, everything, excuse me, but it will help. And she told me it'll have other benefits, too, like increasing access to opportunities for people who don't drive. How does Denver's ozone problem today compared to, you know, what was often called the brown cloud of the 1970s and 80s? So it's it's different. The brown cloud was the product of these, you know, direct emissions from tailpipes of the actual crap that's flying out of a tailpipe pipe. Um, But, you know, since then, the federal government has come in and told automakers, hey, clean up your acts. And that has actually really helped air quality here and across the country. Ozone is different. It's a secondary pollutant. So it forms when nitrous oxide and volatile organic compounds, um, those also come from cars. It, you know, it forms when those react with heat and sunlight. And that's why the ozone is at its worst in the summer. It just literally bakes out there um, in the air. But, you know, they're both similar in that they're really unpleasant to look at and they're really not good to breathe either. Is ozone so bad that the front range needs to try as many things as it can, as the representative said? So it it is getting worse, yes. We've had a record number of ozone days in recent years. Um, If you have asthma, maybe you've really probably felt this in your chest. Uh, The EPA even wants to declare the entire northern front range as a severe violator of ozone standards. It's, it's, It's bad. It's getting worse. Is transit part of the long-term solution? You know, that's hard to say. So this free fare program will last two years, 
Um, but the state has some other related air quality programs too. Incentives for electric cars, electric school buses, things like that. Even um, there's a new one coming for uh, lawn equipment because these small engines are actually really bad polluters. But what we're not seeing is new state money for RTD to actually increase transit service. So it could run more buses and more trains um, to more places. And that is what advocates really, really want to see. So far, we're yeah. not. Yeah. They're, so they're making fares free, but they're not expanding service. Uh, under this new program, exactly when would bus rides be free? And does this apply to like light rail and the train to the plane? So uh, in Metro Denver, um, most likely August. And that's assuming the legislature gives its final sign-off later today and the RTD board approves the, the specifics of their program. Um, uh, and yes, the whole system would be free. Buses, trains, nope. the whole shebang. The whole system. I wonder if there might be any unintended consequences here to making public transit free before we go, Nate. So history has a lesson for us here, too. Um, during that experiment back in the 70s, RTD saw more vandalism, more drunkenness, and assaults on both passengers and drivers. Sadly, Frederick, that, that driver we heard from earlier, she told me one passenger actually threatened to break her arm. Gosh. Yeah. Nathaniel, thank you for yeah, this. You're welcome. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner. The Oscar-winning film Coda gave many moviegoers new insights into the deaf community. But for Cliff Morris and his family, it was less revelation and more confirmation. Morris and his wife are deaf. All four of their children are hearing. That makes the kids CODAs, or Children of Deaf Adults. Cliff Morris joined me in the studio. He leads state services for people who are deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf-blind in Colorado. His daughter, Avery, connected with us from Boise, Idaho, where she's a college student. Also with us, Cliff's ASL interpreter, Christine Pendley. Avery, Cliff, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, I really appreciate you having us here. Cliff, I'm curious where the film Coda was closest to your own experience. Well, specifically when it comes to the use of language. So when I was watching the Coda movie, the family used English. They're all able to use written English. And just thinking about my own family, how we are bilingual. My wife, Julie, and myself, who is Avery's mother, English is our second language. American Sign Language, ASL, is a visual language. And so that was well demonstrated in that film as well. So our children are bilingual, able to use both ASL and English. But they're also able to use spoken English. While my wife, Julie, and I, we write English and then use ASL as our spoken language. Had you not seen that depicted in a mainstream film before? And what was it like to see that on the big screen? It just showed how people are human. That's how we interact within the world. This is how I've interacted growing up, being fourth generation. I mean, that was really the way that I lived. And so it wasn't necessarily ideal. It wasn't exactly what my experiences were growing up, but it was similar. When you say fourth generation, you mean to say going back four generations of, of deafness in your family. 
So I'm third generation deaf. I have brothers and sisters, so my siblings are deaf, my parents are deaf, my grandparents are deaf. I have nieces and nephews that are deaf, so that means my children's cousins are deaf, and there are some that are hearing as well. So yes, there are four generations of deafness, if you count my nieces and nephews within my family. Well, Avery, uh, you are in Boise, Idaho. You're attending Boise State University. You're 23, and uh, we have video monitors set up in the studio today uh, so that you have visual connection to your father. I guess I have the same question for you, which is, in which ways did CODA most match your own experience? And I suppose, where did it differ for you, Avery? Yeah, so I think the one area where I related to the most was the collective culture. They really represented how close family is and how close the deaf community, like how it is. I think I related a lot with that. The U.S. and the hearing world is a little bit individual, like an individualistic culture. And the deaf culture is very much collective. It's the group. You support each other. You stand by each other. And I think the movie represented that pretty well. It's almost as if there's tension there between the kind of broader American society and that closer-knit society you speak of in the deaf community. Yeah, I think the movie showed that kind of tension. For myself, I don't find it that hard. I'm glad to have both kind of perspectives. And I'm really glad about my like my deaf family and my deaf culture. So there's not that much tension for myself, but I understand why others feel that way. I'll just say that you're signing as you speak to us, yeah. obviously, so that your father can understand what you're saying. Uh, but that's, that is also a choice you've made. In other words, you're not asking his interpreter to interpret on your behalf. Do you, do you want to talk to us about that decision? I have never had anyone else speak for myself to my parents. It's just the way I was raised. It's natural for me to include my parents, and it's not something that I think about, like, effortly trying to sign in front of them. It's just instinctual. Instinctual. What do you consider your first language, Avery? My first language was ASL. Was ASL. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Cliff, there is something you have not relied on your children for. Help us understand the role you did not want them to have to play for you and your wife. My wife and I wanted our children to be able to grow up in an environment where they would be able to be children, not in adult roles. And so that's basically why we decided not to use them as interpreters. So when you were out in the world, you were at a supermarket or something like that, and you needed to have communication with, say, a cashier, where you were asking where the bread was, who would have been there with you? An interpreter? So I communicated using my hands. I would use gestures in order to communicate with the individuals that I needed to interact with. Ah. People that I would refer to as non-deaf. So my parents, their generation, they always had pen and paper with them ready to communicate at any given time. So they would write back and forth if they needed to interact with somebody. 
But I don't. I don't any longer. I do everything on my iPhone. So I open up notes and I type something out in order to communicate with somebody and show them my phone, and that's how I interact with them. I use gestures. It isn't difficult. Yeah. In other words, your interpreter in that case is the device. (laughs) I guess you could say that. (laughs) Avery, how do you feel about that choice your parents made? Uh, that they were not going to rely essentially on a little kid to be an interlocutor. I am so thankful for their decision. Um, I was able to just enjoy being a child, and I didn't need to take on such a responsibility and almost a burden. Um, So I'm really thankful they decided not to use us. Are there times, though, when you were out in... Oh, go ahead, Cliff. So what if the police stopped by the house and they were to knock on the door and I answered the door and I were to have one of my kids there, let's say they're, you know, between 9 to 13, do you think that I would want them interpreting for me and the police? Because that just would not be a right scenario. And yet there must have been some circumstances, Avery, when you were out and about Or perhaps someone didn't fully understand the dynamic of your family, or they might have gotten frustrated with it, and they just turned to you as the hearing person with expectations that maybe even though you were seven, you were to communicate on your family's behalf. Did you feel that pressure from society? Yes. I felt a lot of pressure from the hearing individuals. Oftentimes, me and my siblings would act deaf, because the minute they heard us speak Or the minute they heard us interact with each other, they're like, oh, perfect, we can use them. It was really hard to explain to hearing people why it wasn't appropriate for me, a child, to interpret for them. Um, Because many people think, not many people, but I think some people assume that's me being rude. Like, why wouldn't I communicate to my parents? But they don't understand that's also rude for them to try and use a child. Cliff, I wonder if you have noticed a trend among hearing folks that they try to circumvent you in communication, uh, whether that's trying to use a child as an interpreter or, frankly, you know, making eye contact with an interpreter as opposed to you. Uh, Is that something that you have felt as a person who is deaf? Yes, all the time. I mean, that's been my experience always. People not maintaining eye contact with me. When it comes to the language and culture and the values with the deaf community, it's important to make eye contact when conversing in sign language with each other. And once somebody breaks that eye contact, it's a sign of disrespect. My children growing up, often people would turn to them and they would rely on them to interpret for myself and my wife. And I would try to get them out of the picture. That's where I would get a piece of paper or I would get out my phone and I would try to make sure that I was the one that was communicating with them and trying to help them make that connection with me. Avery, I want to key in on something you said just a bit earlier, which is that there were times you would pretend to be deaf. It makes me wonder if your hearingness and your parents' deafness ever felt like a gap between you or a sense maybe that you lived in in two different worlds? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I wouldn't necessarily say there is a gap in between. 
me and my parents. I think I'm a lot more similar to my parents than I am hearing people sometimes. But I do think like my experience as a CODA is very much in the middle ground. I'm not deaf, I can hear. But at the same time, I am so much a part of the deaf community and culture. And I have a lot of those values inside me, but I live in the hearing world differently. And I have access in the hearing world differently than my parents do. But again, I think I'm a lot more similar to the deaf community and my parents than I'm not. Okay. I'm curious if since the movie Coda has come out, have you noticed any difference in how hearing folks treat you? Is the film starting to have some sort of effect on people's awareness, their behavior? And I'll have you start that one, Cliff. I mean, it's basically been a year since that movie's been out. So there's been a lot of conversation about equity and diversity and inclusion. So that seems to be helping to push people to be open-minded. And when they won that Oscar award for that film, I mean, they won three different awards and those were announced. The Department of Human Services, which is where I work here in Colorado, they came to an understanding of what it is, what I do within my work. I work for the Colorado Commission for Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deaf Blind. And often we have these conversations talking about the needs for the communities. How can they have full access? What does it look like to have effective communication? We've been having this conversation for years. And this movie comes out, and all of a sudden people finally understand it. So that is nice. And also frustrating, maybe? I can't be frustrated. Our office has a mission to change to change the world. And it's going to be ongoing, the work that we do, the education to the community. And that's the reason that I'm here. It's really a good opportunity for me. Well, I want to ask you more about your work in in just a bit. Uh, But Avery, to that question of whether CODA, the film, uh, has made any, any difference, do you think, culturally that you sense? I think it starts conversations, and conversations are powerful. I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, like, did you see the movie? It was so cool to see Sign. And so I think it just gives more exposure about the experience. But for culture to change and for society to change, it takes a long time. What are you studying, Avery? Right now I'm studying interdisciplinary studies. So it's a combination of special education, sociology, and nonprofit. In addition to that, I recently graduated from an ASL interpreting program that was designated for CODES. And where do you see yourself landing after you get out of school? And how closely do you think that work will be related to your upbringing? Right now, I see myself interpreting for ASL. I think there's a big relationship to my upbringing And I also think because I didn't play the role as an interpreter growing up, I'm able to consider that for my future. Cliff, give us a few examples of the the biggest obstacles, perhaps, the deaf community faces in terms of barriers in this state. Often people will connect deaf people to a price point, a price tag. So 
for example, if you have somebody that you want to hire, what's the price to do that? Mm. You know, when it comes to providing the need and the accommodations for them, are they going to need interpreters or this or that? And it comes from a lack of knowledge of how to communicate with individuals. They have a view that it's not okay for people to be deaf. People view deaf people as if their ears are broken, as if they're a broken person. If people were to live within the deaf community, they would see what a gift it is that we bring to the world. We have a very close-knit community. We're like a family. But in society, they think everything is based on the ear and that we can't hear. And they think that what we go through is really hard and a struggle. It does make me want to venture a guess, which is that I'm assuming the unemployment rate in the deaf community is higher than the general population for reasons you might have outlined. Yes, it's a very good assumption that you've made. You're Uh right. Yeah, it's so interesting, Avery, because we talked about ASL being your first language. And I think like when kids talk to each other about the languages that they're studying, it's often like, oh, I'm taking Spanish or I'm taking French or German or something. I just wonder if if you wish more Americans thought, you know, I'm going to learn a language that's not my own, and it's going to be ASL. Is that something you'd like to see more of? Yeah. I actually get a lot of comments of like, oh, ASL seems so cool. It's visual. It's not spoken. It's something different. It's like a whole other type of language in its own way. So I think there is a lot of interest, but there could always be more. (laughs) There could always be more. Cliff, given that deafness has run in your family, there, I suppose, was a moment when you learned that your children were hearing and not deaf. And I wonder what that moment was like. That's a good question. I wasn't expecting you to ask that. So when my first son was born, Zeb is his name. As in Zebulon Pike? Yep, Zebulon, okay. <laughs> that's correct. A true Coloradan here, folks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Avery's my second born. But when Zeb was born, I thought it was just a miracle. And I was just so fascinated looking at this infant, thinking about how can this even be? I didn't even think about, is this infant hearing? Are they deaf? It wasn't even on my mind. Hmm. And I do know that there are some individuals who are out there who are deaf, and they do wish that their children will be born deaf, but it wasn't necessarily anything that I had um, hoped for. And also, Zeb refused to use his voice. He did not speak until he was four years old. It was right before he actually started kindergarten. And part of that was that he didn't have to use his spoken language at home. He could hear, but he just wasn't comfortable speaking in English. And he didn't have a lot of opportunity to speak English. And then he goes into preschool at four and was in that environment as a coded child. They actually had to encourage him to speak in that classroom. And yet here he was bilingual and he had to manage both of those languages And he finally would speak to his teacher, and then after that, he became much more comfortable speaking English. But ASL was his first language. Avery, does that resonate with you? I mean, my brother is older than me, so I had maybe a little bit more access to spoken language, but similar experiences, yes. Did you want to go to a deaf school? Yes. 
Oh, you I did. did. Me and my older brother very much. So we, I remember like begging my parents, like, can I please go to the school, Rocky Mountain Deaf School? Um, and I really wanted to go. I had deaf friends who were there. I wanted nothing more than to be a part of a small community school where I knew everyone. When I entered elementary school, I, I struggled to adjust socially because I was just so used to being in the deaf world. It was easier for me to exist in the deaf world than it was for me to adjust to the hearing world. Well, and how natural to want to go to school at a place where they spoke your first language. Hello. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I want to thank you both for being with us. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, to be able to share our experiences with the public and out in the community. Avery Morris Okoda attends Boise State University. Her father, Cliff, heads the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deafblind. We were also joined by ASL interpreter Christine Pendley. And Colorado Matters continues with a high school graduation speech that expresses hope despite hopeless circumstances. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Erica Krauss is the Colorado PI who helped the nation see Title IX as about much more than sports. And her new memoir, Tell Me Everything, is a riveting look into a landmark sexual assault investigation here in Colorado. It's also our next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details and free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's graduation season at high schools all over the state. Valedictorians are preparing speeches, just as Marion Kanishi did almost 80 years ago. Hers was under extraordinary circumstances. From behind barbed wire, she spoke for the students of Amachi High School at Camp Amachi, the Japanese-American internment camp on Colorado's plains. We asked Denver actress Adrienne Lee Robinson to read the speech. America, our hope is in you. June 25th, 1943. One and a half years ago, I knew only one America. An America that gave me an equal chance in the struggle for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If I were asked then, what does America mean to you? I would answer without hesitation and with all sincerity America means freedom, equality, security, and justice. The other night, while I was preparing for this speech, I asked myself the same question. What does America mean to you? I hesitated. I was not sure of my answer. I wondered if America still means and will mean freedom, equality, security, and justice when some of its citizens were segregated, discriminated against, and treated so unfairly. I knew I was not the only American seeking an answer. Then I remember that old saying, all the answers to the future will be found in the past for all men. So, unmindful of the searchlights reflecting in my windows, 
I sat down and tried to recall all the things that were taught to me in my history, sociology, and American life classes. This is what I remembered. America was born in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, and for 167 years it has been held as the hope, the only hope for the common man. America has guaranteed to each and all, native and foreign, the right to build a home, to earn a livelihood, to worship, think, speak, and act as he pleased, as a free man, equal to every other man. Every revolution within the last 167 years, which had for its aim more freedom, was based on her constitution. No cry from an oppressed people has ever gone unanswered by her. America froze, shoeless, in the snow at Valley Forge, and battled for her life at Gettysburg. She gave the world its greatest symbols of democracy— George Washington, who freed her from tyranny, Thomas Jefferson, who defined her democratic course, and Abraham Lincoln, who saved her and renewed her faith. Sometimes America failed and suffered. Sometimes she made mistakes, great mistakes. But she always admitted them and tried to rectify all the injustices that flowed from them. I noticed that the major trend in American history has been towards equality and fair play for all. America hounded and harassed the Indians. Then, remembering these were the first Americans, she gave them back their citizenship. She enslaved the Negroes, then again remembering Americanism. She wrote out the Emancipation Proclamation. She persecuted the German Americans during the First World War, then recalling that America was born of those who came from every nation seeking liberty and justice, she repented. Her history is full of errors, but with each mistake, she has learned and has marched forward onward toward a goal of security and peace and a society of free men where the understanding that all men are created equal, an understanding that all men, whatever their race, color, or religion, be given an equal opportunity to serve themselves and each other according to their needs and abilities. I was once again at my desk. True, I was just as embittered as any other evacuee, but... I had found in the past the answer to my question. I had also found my faith in America. Faith in the America that is still alive in the hearts, minds, and consciences of true Americans today. Faith in the American sportsmanship, an attitude of fair play that will judge citizenship and patriotism on the basis of actions and achievements and not on the basis of physical characteristics. Can we, the graduating class of Amachi Senior High School, still believe that America means freedom, equality, security, and justice? Do I believe this? Do my classmates believe this? Yes, with all our hearts. Because in that faith, in that hope, is my future. Our future. And the world's future. America, Our Hope is in You by Marion Kanishi at Camp Amachi in 1943. Especially poignant today because Amachi has just joined the National Park Service. But John Hopper will keep caring for the place. He's a social studies teacher at nearby Grenada High School. When I ran across that you know, years ago, it, it, it just sent chills down my, my spine because of what she had to say. 1943, here's a, a teenager, you know, giving an address to her school. Your first paragraph, mindful of the searchlights reflecting in my window. You know, that just sends chills down your, your back. 
the speech itself all the way through there, we, we used it for year, uh, several years and still do every now and then to read to the people that we do presentations to because it's such a powerful speech. It's also been, it is a matter of record in Congress because a former Senator Cory Gardner actually read it and made it a congressional record hmm. in uh, Congress. Senator Gardner also played a role in getting Amachi into the national park system. We'll talk about that maybe in just a bit. The notion, John, of hope in the environment that Marion was living in, if you can call it living, the notion of hope is stunning to me. Does that also surprise you? Yeah. In the speech, he talks about all the mistakes that the United States have made in the past, obviously referring to this is a mistake for having Japanese and Japanese Americans in confinement Mm -hmm. centers as the same thing, another mistake. But our hope is in you that, one, it won't happen again. Two, we forgive. Three, hopefully the United States will learn something from this. And our, our hope is in you that it won't happen again. Marion gave this speech after she and her family were uprooted from their home in Los Angeles by that infamous Order 9066. Could you describe what the camp was like in Marion's time? When they first arrived, understand that you had communal bathrooms, you had three toilets for women, three toilets for the men, which roughly, it was like 125 people per toilet, Um, no privacy. The rooms were completely bare. There was a uh, one light bulb in the middle of this 20 by 20 room. You had a potbelly stove for heat, no insulation whatsoever, and wooden cots with army blankets. A lot of the families will actually hang a lot of those blankets to try to section off some of these rooms so that the children and the, and the adults or the, the parents can have some privacy. When the wind blows like it's blowing today, uh, you know, 60 miles per hour, the dirt uh, was horrendous. The heat in the hundreds, there was not very good ventilation, so it was extremely hot in the summer. It was cold in the winter. You had bugs that would uh, climb underneath the foundations into the rooms rattlesnakes everywhere. You had uh, communal mess halls. At the very beginning, they were fed food that they didn't, that wasn't part of their culture. So they, they didn't like, didn't eat a lot of it uh, until they, they could get their own food going for a while. So it's and no running water in the barracks. You had one pail, that pail, they could go get some water from the bathrooms and they would they would come in and wet the floors to try to cool it down in the summertime and keep the dust down they would stick their their clothes underneath the gaps in the foundations to try to keep the dust out the mice out the rodents out Uh, some of them would take up some of the the bricks that were on the floor and dig a big hole so they could lower the baby formula that they would have for babies uh, to try to keep it cool Hmm. the specificity of of your description, I think, just indicates uh, how many of these stories you have listened to over the years. And, you know, I'll just note that a lot of these folks came in the clothes that they had in California, ill-suited to the plains of Colorado. 
Yeah, that's that was a huge problem. Uh, many of the Los Angeles people didn't have winter coats. And so um, they were actually the government was giving them uh, uh, Navy pea coats and whatever the coats they could find. In fact, we have a, a few of those pea coats, uh, examples of those in our in our museum as, as well. That's a museum that you actually helped start. It's now under the auspices of the city, and it's got lots of donated items from people who survived those camps. You've been so vivid about describing life at Amachi, and, and contrast that to what you see there today. And I know that too is evolving. Yeah, when, when Marion was there, and you, well, you had 7,300 and some people at, at its peak, 380 some buildings everywhere, guard towers, eight guard towers with searchlights, double hung windows so that they could put their guns out the windows. Today, we have one of those guard towers completely reconstructed. What? And we have it next to a reconstructed barrack that's on an original foundation. And we also have been able to get a grant to move an original uh, Machi wreck building that was underneath our water tower in the town of Grenada back to its site at uh, on the 11F wreck building, exactly right on the same foundation. About 80 some percent of the found all foundations are still there. Mm-hmm. You've got a cemetery that was nothing at one time. It was nothing but uh, a sagebrush and a little buffalo grass, pack rack mounds and barbed wire everywhere. Uh, in 2001, our entire school district, kindergarten through 12th grade, we went out there with money that was donated to us to uh, restore that cemetery, to plant grass, plant hundreds of trees, uh, put chain link fencing, redo the monument buildings, roof. So we were able to do all that. We have kiosks and walking trails and signs at the main gate. So have you met Marion, who now goes by her married name, Marion Takahara? Have you, have you been able to talk to her about all this? Yeah, we, she came back to a pilgrimage a couple of years prior to uh, when, when COVID hit. Uh, she actually read her speech at our pilgrimage and she sounded just like a teenager again but i i have um she doesn't do a lot of emailing i email her her daughter uh check up on her once in a while and and she's still doing well right now and she's 96 years old 96 96 yeah i know that she a couple years ago she was still doing speeches after she left the camp she um went on to college a Methodist school in Ohio. She got uh, her master's in teaching. She had hoped to become a doctor, uh, and she did work for a time as a medical technician. Uh, married, had three children. Marion said for a time she was ashamed to be Japanese. In an interview she did with Rice University in 2016. After Pearl Harbor... It was a period of time that we were very ashamed of the fact that we were Japanese. And we tried to avoid anything that was Japanese and tried to be as much Americanized as possible. But growing up, my parents just wanted us to be 100% Americanized. 
that's the reason we didn't go to any language school. And that's the reason why I can't speak a lot of Japanese. John, do you think that her speech, again, her valedictory speech, do you think it should be a part of all high school history lessons in Colorado? I could see that. It, it could be used in several different ways. It could be used in a, in a government class or it could be used in a U.S. history class. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it printed in just every, every book in, in the United States. Uh, let's go back to that museum devoted to Kampamachi. You started that at the school, but it has indeed grown to become a standalone facility. What kinds of other things will visitors find there among often the donated items, 1,500 of them, I think? Yeah. Well, we've got large amounts of personal photographs and photo albums from a multitude of Japanese-American families that were at Amachi. Mm. We have a good picture of, of Marion and her speech is one of the first things that people run into, which we direct them to immediately. But uh, And then a lot of homemade furniture that Japanese-Americans made while at Amachi because they didn't have furniture. Artwork that, that was done at Amachi. Lots of different things. Can you think of a photograph or an image that you have seen that is seared in your mind? One photograph that's always, uh, in fact, we have it in our PowerPoint, is a uh, funeral for, I think it was six or seven Japanese Americans that were killed fighting for the United States in the war. And it was in the Amachi gym. And and one of the mothers was up on stage to get the uh, the gold star for the loss of her son. Mm. That is remarkable. Mm. The commitment to country and a country that was really mistreating you. Um, You've received some pushback, blowback in your pursuit of Camp Amachi history. What are some of the objections you hear? Uh, You know, the usual. uh, It was the right thing to do at the time. It was the sign of times, uh, which... It doesn't matter when it happened, it's wrong, right? So, yeah, they say, hey, we were at war, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when you have Supreme Court Justice uh, just recently saying that don't kid yourself that this can't happen again at the time of war, these are the things that we need to look at and stop. And and hopefully it, that speech is a classic example that maybe if we have it in the in our history books that Maybe our youth will stop this from happening again. Over the decades, John, I understand that you and your students have not only studied Amachi, but you've like mended fences and built kiosks, watered the cemetery, picked up trash. Are those duties that you can turn over soon to the National Park Service? That I hope so. (laughs) I've got one. I had one student that, you know, with a handsaw. Uh, he just trimmed some trees. That's all I asked and, and still cut himself. But um, yeah, uh, I do hope so. I don't think they're going to be taking over quickly or anytime soon. So I think at least for the next couple of years, I think we're still going to be operating the same way we have been. I'm, I'm hoping to see a, a national park ranger at the site. I mean, the, the amount of tours that have increased because of the designation have quadrupled. So be nice. I mean, we're going to still man and operate the museum, but uh, the site, again, 
just all the duties that you just talked about and eventually and painting we're, we're having to paint uh the barracks that we have up there uh the the window trims and keep that in place it's it's a lot of work have you given thought to whether if you were a decision maker at the time in the 1940s would you have bucked the trend and said no to internment camps so you you say that you get feedback from people who say it was the right thing to do at the time. Right. Have you given thought to whether you'd be the kind of person who would have spoken up? Actually, I am one of those type of people that would speak up against something like that. I've always been that way, I guess. And I, I guess that's, let's be honest, the way you're brought up, that makes a big difference in the way your thinking is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've I've always been a, a tad outspoken. I think my students know that. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes I don't shut up. Um, so I do get fairly fired up, just like a lot of the Japanese Americans today. When what what happened at the southern border, what's a couple of years ago with families being separated, you know, some of the first people to start protesting that were were Japanese Americans. I was the same way. If it was the 1940s. I would hope that I would be that way. Uh, John, thank you for being with us. You bet. Thank you. John Hopper is a social studies teacher at Grenada High School. For years, he and his students have tended to Colorado's Camp Amachi, formerly known as the Grenada Relocation Center. It's now a National Historic Site. And that is Colorado Matters today, with special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher and Nancy Lofholm. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.